Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. One of the very first classes I received in the Marine Corps was a history class. That might seem a little surprising to a non-military audience. I'm assuming most people would think it would have been about tactics or how to clean a rifle, but nope, it was a history lesson. The Marine Corps loves its history. At first, in officer candidate school, the history lessons mostly focused on traditions and the high-profile heroic history. These were tales of Iwo Jima and Tripoli. The goal of these early lessons was to build in us esprit de corps, as well as impressing upon us, as individuals aspiring to lead Marines, that we had a noble legacy to uphold. But the history lessons changed significantly after we had survived, barely, officer candidate school and earned our commissions. The next step in my career was the basic school, and during the six months there, we had several more history classes, which weren't exactly graduate level courses, but they were significantly deeper. And one of the instructors introduced his class by telling us we had a responsibility to cultivate a 20-year-old body and a 3,000-year-old mind. That idea had stuck with me for several years now, because what he meant was we were expected, obviously, to keep ourselves physically fit, but we were also supposed to learn the lessons of history and expand our experience by knowing what others had done in situations that we might similarly face. I will confess to being a bit of a history nerd before I joined the Marine Corps, so that idea only reinforced my already existing reading habits. And they were further reinforced when, several years later, an email written by then-General James Mattis was forwarded to nearly every USMC.mil email address, including mine. The first two paragraphs are worth considering in full. He wrote, Dear Bill, The problem with being too busy to read is that you learn by experience, or by your men's experience i.e. the hard way. By reading, you learn through others' experiences, generally a better way to do business, especially in our line of work, where the consequences of incompetence are so final for young men. Thanks to my reading, I have never been caught flat-footed in any situation, never at a loss for how any problem has been addressed, successfully or unsuccessfully, before. It doesn't give me all the answers, but it lights what is often a dark path ahead. Now that is quite profound. And it exposes a fundamental reality for a military professional. All being well, people serving in the military will only have brief moments to put their combat skills and training into practice. Stephen Ambrose wrote about that in his biography of Dwight Eisenhower, saying, The military differs from all other professions in any number of ways, but the most important is this. Field officers get to practice their profession only on rare occasions. For most of their careers, their country is at peace, but their entire raison d'etre is to fight. And what the Army wants to know about its officers is, who will meet the ultimate test of combat successfully? This idea was brought up again to me recently when I ran into Dr. Bruce Gudmanson, who is the Senior Fellow for Case Studies at the Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. I like to think of him as, a, as the historian in residence of the Marine Corps. He's authored a number of books, including Stormtroop Tactics, about the developments of German tactics in the First World War, and several books about the British Army during that conflict. He was very active in the military reform movement of the 1980s. He brought a very interesting historical perspective to that effort. 
as is inevitable in all matters historical, we are hardly the first country attempting to reform our military ways. I first met Bruce while I was a student at Expeditionary Warfare School in 2011 when he walked my class through a case study of the Tunisian campaign during World War II. I found that to be fascinating then, and I was thrilled to sit down with him again recently to talk about what we have to learn from history. And I was also surprised to hear about his very personal encounter with a highly controversial historical figure. One of the definitive characteristics of the military profession is that it's like insurance. Uh, you want to have military professionals, but you don't really want to use them. And even military professionals that see a great deal of active service, who are often in harm's way, spend most of their time doing something else. And this is quite different from other professions. So you can imagine a lawyer who only went to court three or four times in the course of his career, a surgeon who only actually did surgery on a patient three or four times in his career. That's the position the military profession, uh, military professional is in. So there has to be some sort of simulation. So most of what military professionals do is engage in various imperfect simulations. In fact, even active service, active, active service is an imperfect simulation of the next active service, particularly for an organization like the Marine Corps, which is expeditionary, it can be sent, sent anywhere. So uh, the uh, people who fought in, in Iraq one time, they go back to Iraq, it's a different place, a different time, the war is different. Then they go to Afghanistan different war, different time. So the, there is a need to have a, a baseline, a context, uh, a, a feedback loop for these simulations. And that feedback loop is history. That, that um, if, uh, if you look at the classic technique of military education, there are two elements. There are games of various sorts, decision-forcing games, what were originally called Aufgaben assignments, I'm using the German term. And then there was the study of history. And those two, those two elements complement each other. One exercise is an exercise of imagination. And then history always brings you back to reality. Now, that reality is not banal that reality is often more interesting and certainly stranger than your imagination. You know, truth is, is really stranger than, uh, than fiction, but it, it, the history is your, is your connection to reality. It is your link to reality. Okay, uh, is that sound, that, that sounds very closely related to the famous email that then General Mattis, now Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, sent and, and has been forwarded uh, at least a million times where he said that he has never been really caught off guard uh, by anything that he's ever experienced because it relates directly back to something that he's read in, in books. Uh, is that is that a valid statement? I think so. I think so. I think I think I would I would you know uh, quote you know Mark Twain who said history does not repeat itself but it rhymes. Right. So so there there are patterns. There are no hard and fast lessons. History doesn't say you must do this or you can't do this. But but there are patterns out there, 
And the more you read, the more the more you see those patterns. Okay. Uh, so I've read most of your books, uh, not all of them, most of them. And Stormtroop Tactics is uh, is by far my favorite. Uh, in but in the course of your books, like in on infantry and uh, and in other places too, you've uh, you've written a lot about the Germans. Yes. Now talking about the Germans in the American military is uh, is a little controversial. I've had a number of people over the years roll their eyes and say that why should we study the Germans because we beat them twice. Uh, so uh, the people are just very dismissive about it a, a lot of times. Uh, but why, why in your mind is it is it relevant for us to to study the the Prussian experience and then later yeah. the German experience? Yeah, the, the, there is within the Prussian and German experience. And, you know, Prussia was a state that was within Germany and later became Germany, took over Germany in 18, 1871. So imagine uh, Prussia's like Texas to Americans, right? It's, it's uh, yes, it is very much, it's very much American. In fact, it's more American than America. Um, and, uh, but so imagine if Texas, imagine if Texas took over uh, the United States somehow, you know, it, it was that kind of, that kind of relationship. And the, that tradition within the experience is very interesting for a number of reasons. One, it was remarkably effective. People in that tradition punched well above their weight class. So if, if your concern is to have an effective military, you want to ask why. And there's some very good books about that. Martin Van Krebel's Fighting Power, uh, Colonel Dupuy's book um, called Genius for War. Uh, look at that, that, that question. The second, and this is quite ironic, given the way we imagine German soldiers to be, and Prussian soldiers in particular, is that it was a very humane tradition, and humane in many ways. Humane in the sense that it drew upon the humanities, that the people who were part of this tradition were exquisitely well-educated. They were well-read. They spoke several languages. They were interested in philosophy. They were interested in science. They, they kept company with the leading intellectual lights of the day. You look at their, their relationships, uh, who was married to whose sister, uh, whose godfather to whose child. And, and these are people who are, are really keeping company with the brain trust. Okay. Well, that kind of reminds me of uh, what was the the famous quote from Helmut uh, von, von Moltke, okay. where he could uh, be silent in yes. six languages. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. So, so Helmut von Moltke is is in a sense a parag parag paragon of this of this tradition. He was somebody right. Spoke seven languages. Famous for being taciturn, for, for being quiet. So he was called der große Schweiger, the great silent one. In German, to be silent is an active verb, you know, Schweigen. Um, sort of interesting. Um, uh, it's, an, it, it's, it's an action rather than a, the lack of action. Um, but he was somebody who was, if he hadn't been a soldier, would have been a great literary figure. He was a man of immense literary talent because he needed to make extra money, German soldiers were not well paid. He needed to get a horse for his service, and, he, and so he translated Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. You know, that's a huge 
not just a doorstopper of a book, but stop <laughs> multiple all, books. Right, right. Stop all the doors in your house. The uh, translating that from English into uh, into German. So he was um, again exquisitely well educated man, uh, very philosophical, and um, very very extraordinarily thoughtful man. You could go back and you read his writings, and you get this is a very 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 clever not not just clever but 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 deep. And he was a, he was an amazing military commander. So how did how did his I guess literary intellectual nature make him a better military commander? There there was an interesting correlation between literary talent and and generalship because how does a general communicate a general on a, on a certain scale now if you go back to the 18th century the generals on the battlefield he sees everything so when George Washington fought a battle he saw most of that battle but then comes the French Revolution and Napoleon armies get much much larger they get even larger in the in the 19th century and now the overall commander is dealing with a whole bunch of different commanders who are dealing with different commanders who, who and and it's only the people much lower in the in the hierarchy who are seeing things in the battlefield so your chief means of communication is the written word and he was very very good at that okay so the 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 prussians went through a very robust um, period of reform yes. in no. the early part of the 19th century. And we still t today remember some of the names, some of the central figures of that, yes. Scharnhorst, yes. uh, Clausewitz, yes. uh, and many others like that. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because obviously we're very passionate about military reform yes. and it's, it's the center of, of, of what we do at the Strauss Military Reform Project. Uh, can you explain the, the Prussian reform movement and uh, how it actually predated uh, uh, the, the Battle of, uh, Battle of Jena yes. in, in 1806? Yes, and forgive me if this sounds like a fairy tale. Once upon a time there was a wise and beautiful queen, Queen Louise. She was actually the niece of the Charlotte of Charlottesville in Virginia, not far away from here. And uh, she was very, very clever. And she saw on the horizon, she saw Napoleon. And she saw Napoleon as he was a tyrant, a, a, somebody who would simply invade another country at, at will, try to impose his system of liberty, equality, and fraternity on other countries, uh, and do so in, 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 in a way that killed a lot of people and deposed uh, monarchs and overthrew systems of government and law and what have you. So she's looking at her state, Prussia at this time a relatively small state, relatively poor state, with a grand military tradition from the last century, but Prussia had really been at peace for a long time. And their military had gotten very formal. The They had basically drunk their own Kool-Aid. Uh, so uh, they had this uh, army that was very good at parades and, and formal maneuvers uh, that had a wonderful tradition, but was not catching up with, with the real world. So she's thinking, mm, I need to uh, update my army. How do I do that? So she, she gets on Craigslist, or the equivalent, the 19th century equivalent of Craigslist, <laughs> and starts looking for talent. 
And one person she picks out is a young man named Gerhard von Scharnhorst. And she, she actually knows him from his writings. He's a, he's, he does a lot of military writing. And military journals are still a very new thing here. He writes for a, a journal called Neue Bellona, Bellona the, the, the new Bellona, Bellona, the Roman goddess of war. And even having a title like that, you can imagine what the readership's like, what, what people are, 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 are thinking about. So, so, and he is the graduate of a school designed to create humane officers. And again, humane in, in, in two ways, both educated in the humanities, but also ethical, concerned about what we're going to employ our talents for the sake of, sake of humanity. Uh, this isn't, isn't about conquest. We're only going to defend our, our respective countries. And the man who ran the school was, was Wilhelm of Schomburg-Lippe. And Wilhelm built or had a castle in an island in a, in a, in a lake. And that castle was this kind of Hogwarts for, for, uh, for military students. And the curriculum was very open-ended. Most of the time, the students were reading on their own. Now, they, they, they had some mentors, but it was very much a, a tutorial uh, system, very much like, a, like an Oxford-style uh, tutorial, even, even less structured than that. So Scharnhorst, who came from humble beginnings, his father had been an NCO in the cavalry, uh, he uh, is in the Hanoverian service. Hanover was a, another German, German state, actually connected with the British uh, state with, with, with the royal family. And uh, he is um, doing all sorts of interesting things there. He's an artillery officer, doing a lot of things with artillery, but also in terms of the larger, um, the, the higher arts of, of, of war, you know, not just tactics, but, but strategy and, and operations. But he's not going anywhere. So the queen says, okay, come work for us, you know, come to Prussia. We'll make you a nobleman. You'll now be Gerhard von Scharnhorst. You'll, you'll, you'll be in with the cool kids now. And, and you will set up a school for me. So he sets up a school uh, in Berlin. And he um, brings together an interesting group of people. One of them is a guy named Kiesewetter. And Kiesewetter is a disciple of <coughs> Immanuel Kant, the philosopher. So there's philosophy. And, and hardcore, you know, philosophy. I mean, I mean Kiesewetter was the popularizer of Kant. He actually wrote a book called The New Philosophy for Dummies. That was the actual title. Yeah. Uh, no, not dummies. He said, he said beginners. But, but it, it, today would call it, you know, philosophy for dummies. And they, um, uh, but most of the teaching he did himself. So in addition to, to, to these humanistic, in the old sense of the word, courses, the uh, Scharnhorst built a curriculum around two methods. One was the method of decision games, what we'd now call tactical decision games. He'd take a piece of real terrain, give the students an imaginary situation, put them in the role of the overall commander. That's key. That's very important. It's, he wants them to think about the, 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 the problem as a whole. So even though his students are lieutenants, some of them 19, 20 years old, they are playing the role of the general. They're playing the role of the combined arms commander. Right. And they're doing this on real terrain. So the first of his problems like this, they, they call them Aufgaben problems, we, we'd call them decision games, was in the Berlin Zoo, the Tiergarten. 
right? because there was a lot of open terrain and you know sort of you know imagine not a not a not not a mid 20th century zoo but but an ideal zoo with the, with the, with the, with the the deer and such mm-hmm. roaming freely over over the terrain so a nice piece of open terrain to, to to work on then the second was the intensive study of of military history and particularly recent military history that used the same technology that was available in his time that is a very fascinating story. I'm interested to know how, what, what we might be able to learn from that today. So the, the, the first thing to learn is that there's a great deal of intellectual preparation going on. So Scharnhorst and is at the school, he's building up this cadre of people who think in this new, new way. They're problem solvers who are grounded in history. And even though they're very, very young, they have this skill and they are studying the higher arts of war because they know that they're going to fight Napoleon. And Napoleon himself is a genius, but he's a jealous genius. He doesn't trust subordinates. In fact, his subordinates who get too clever, like my favorite, Davu, very clever fellow, he doesn't trust them and he puts them off on the side and gives them the assignment where they can't get too much glory because how did Napoleon become the emperor? He was a young hotshot commander, won glory in the battlefield, came back, launched a coup, took over. So of course, what's he afraid of is the same thing. So uh, you're dealing with a system based on the single genius who's really, really good, but he's a single point of failure. Schornhorst's plan is, I can't make lots of Napoleons, but I can make lots of guys who are pretty darn good and these guys are going to be the assistants to the commanders, not just of the Prussian forces, but of all the forces that are allied with Prussia. So he's thinking in terms of a coalition. Of course, coalitions have inherent problems. This is about creating a network of, of people who know each other, who trust each other, who know they, they understand the way that the other fellows in this network think forms a network and that network trumps trumps the hierarchy it's very 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 21st century actually mm-hmm. so he's, he's he's building this network and these people are going to be the uh richard calls them adjutants but 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 really the general staff officers so even though they're they're, they're relatively young actually quite young they they, they are going to be part of this this network that keeps the keeps the alliance together at the working at the working level and he was able to do this, uh, you know, as a relatively junior member of the army. Uh, yes, I mean, there's a great book on this called *The Enlightened Soldier*. Yes, and and because if I remember correctly, he was a he was a major. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I, I think he he he's a major. They make him a lieutenant colonel. That uh, and again, they make him make him a nobleman. But yes, no. This is an army that has field marshals and and generals with with you know more stars than the Hayden Planetarium. So, so he comes over to Prussia uh, in 1800, if I remember correctly. It, it, it's 1800, thereabouts, yes. And he found some traction among his juniors, but the seniors weren't all, all terribly thrilled. No, no, he, and he's getting, he's getting a lot of top cover from the queen. And, the, um, uh, and that's, that's very important. Uh, so that there, that there is top cover because the military hierarchy at the time in Prussia is very inward looking, very fond of itself, very concerned about its own 
uh, prestige and and really resting on the laurels of things that happened really before 1763. Mm-hmm. Right. So these were people who were in their in their heyday, in their salad days, when George Washington was a young man, to give you a sense of the of of, of the timing. Right, and then 1806 happens, Napoleon invades, uh, the Prussians suffer uh, or humiliated. Yes, yes, right, right, there's, there, there's a defeat, but it's not just a defeat. It's, it's not even a, just a humiliation, it's a disgrace. That what happens is that the, the leading members of the hierarchy, the people who actually have commands, these generals disgrace themselves. It's not that they're incompetent, it's that they give up easily. They are surrendering fortresses. So you know, imagine a, a fortress bristling with cannons to cavalry patrols. So, so there's you know, some French lieutenant, some, some hussar rides up, sees a fortress, and they, they raise a white flag. Well, they could have, they, they could have lasted for, for weeks, months even if they brought up a whole army, but they're surrendering to these, these, um, these patrols. And in the end, Prussia has to be rescued from complete annihilation by the Russians. And then in the end, the Russians and the French are, are, are negotiating an end to this war. And the Prussians, who are, it's all about them, are wondering, they're watching from a distance. Um, this is happening in, in the town of Klaipeda in what's now Lithuania. They're, they're, they're there in the river, there's an island in the river where the French and the Russians are, are negotiating, and the Prussians aren't even at the table. It's like, will we have a country tomorrow? Right, so then after that, Scharnhorst found a very different environment in which to, in which to act, and that's when the real reforms uh, of, the, of the Prussian military really happened. Yes, and, and, and it's a thoroughgoing reform. And again, I recommend the enlightened soldier Chuck, Chuck White's, Charles Edward White, Charles Edward White's book, uh, on the subject, it's terrific, terrific story. Well, very well written, and it's a thoroughgoing reform. Everything from the shape of musket stocks, so people can actually aim. Um, the two, uh, again, the, the the training of of the general staff officers, the selection of of general officers. They really put together a very good team. Uh, training is completely redone. The drill manual is redone, so it's much more flexible. It's 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 not like parade. I mean, it's much more like parade than what we're used to in the modern era, you know, in the twenty twenty first century. But it's very very flexible. Mm-hmm. So it's it's still line and column, but there's it's it's being done very very quickly, and you have commanders who are not who are not being judged on things like cover and alignment. They're judged on how quickly you can you can form this battalion and get it to where it's supposed to be. Okay, so what do we in the United States in in the early part of the 21st century have to learn uh, from that reform movement? Yes, the, the first thing is that any successful reform movement requires an infrastructure. It requires a lot of preparation. It requires a lot of quiet labor often intellectual labor, building up the intellectual capital, building up the cadre, building up people who understand these things so that, that if they find themselves in a position to do something, they're able to do that. They, they, they have the mentality, they have the skills, they have the attitudes, they have the knowledge. Uh, so all those things must, must be in place. The second thing 
and this is the bad news, is that it may require not so much defeat, but a disgrace. That the people who are uh, in charge, the people who have great reputations, the people who are seen as the very model of, of military virtue, the people who are holding back the reform, it's not enough that they lose. In fact, even losing is less important that they have to disgrace themselves. They have to, they have to lose their authority in, 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 in a way that a lot of people can understand. Because what a reform movement is doing is changing, changing the paradigm, is changing the model of, of when people say, what's a soldier? What do you imagine? What's, what, what's the vision? I mean, do you, do you see William Westmoreland? Right? And I, I think I am the last Marine ever to have been chewed out by William Westmoreland. That's my, I, I claim that honor. I won't, I won't bore you with that story, but, but it was a long time ago. The, but handsome man, great voice, even had a, what looked like a dueling scar. It was actually from a car accident. He was every inch the soldier. That was the model. Look at, again, Scharnhorst. He's a little scruffy. He's got, you know, sort of wild hair. Mm -hmm. um, very, very thoughtful. He's sort of a, a little on the bookish side. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to command, he can give a very clear, concise, unequivocal order. He's not a scatterbrain in any way, but he's not what you think about. He's certainly not what you, th what you thought about during the Napoleonic Wars. If you wanted, a, a great way to understand the Napoleonic Wars is to look at a film called The Duelists. This is a film from the 1970s with, with um, Harvey Cartel. Right? And that it captures the spirit of the Napoleonic Wars very well. And you see these, again, very dynamic, athletic, uh, well-dressed officers with, a, with a, certain, a certain spirit. The, uh, the people who are doing the Prussian reform are, 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 are quite different. Uh, we often read Clausewitz these days, or at least we quote Clausewitz. Uh, Clausewitz is actually one, one of the junior collaborators, one of the uh, people that Scharnhorst uh, mentored. Uh, and again, he very, very similar, very thoughtful guy, thinking problems through. Uh, guy with a lot of trigger time. You know, we, we, he did, didn't spend all his life in the library. He loved the library, loved the books, but but he had about eight years of active service, starting when he was twelve. Hmm. Right. So, so, uh, but you're you're changing the paradigm of what you want from a military officer. All right, I, I have to ask as you tease this uh, this question now. It just begs the question. You have to tell me the story of being chewed out by William Westmoreland. Yes, it, this this was uh, it was actually at Yale College. Uh, so this is this was nineteen the fall of nineteen seventy seven. So I was a lance corporal in the Marine Corps Reserve. And he came to speak, and, they, and a bunch of students were invited to have dinner with him. So I was there with my, you could see my Marine Corps tie. I was you know, wearing, wearing a, a blue blazer and, a, and my, my, my nice Marine Corps tie. And uh, he, uh, he talked about you know, what had happened with the Korean army when the North Koreans invaded. So the, the Republic of Korea army hit very hard by the North Korean invasion, and it collapses. And because so, somebody had asked him a question about what was going on then in Korea, and to be basically was was uh, the British would say rubbishing the Koreans, and I, I took umbrage at this, and uh, I said, you know, this was also Americans who 
did this. And I said, oh, you know, by the way, the Marines had to sort of, <laughs> you know, save the Army's bacon um, here. And that was not very tactful, but I was, you know, 18 years old. <laughs> and the, um, so he, he wasn't, wasn't very happy. And then after his talk, he came up to me and, and uh, accused me of, at the age of 18, fomenting inter-service rivalry. <laughs> right. So that's, that's my story of... of, of uh, that is great. That is great. Now, yesterday, during during one of your uh, one, one of your talks here at, at, at this conference, you uh, you related how when when asked what you do, uh, you tell people that you teach Marines empathy. Yes. Can yes. you explain what that what that means and what that entails? Yes. The, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that empathy is not sympathy. Right. We often confuse the two, but they're two very different different uh, concepts. What I do is I teach the case method. The case method in, in, a, in a military uh, context, and I define military very broadly. But the case method is an attempt to take what Scharnhorst was doing, these decision games and the history, and to put them together. So a decision-forcing case is a decision game based on actual events, things that actually happened. And the reason I believe so strongly in doing this, uh, this sort of exercise is because the history gives you the grounding. And the history also allows the student to play the role of somebody who's a real human being with a real personality, a real backstory. So there's, there's deep role play. So when students play the Emperor Napoleon, of a bunch of cases about the Emperor Napoleon, I address students as your majesty, sire, Napoleon Bonaparte, emperor of the French. The, so we, we do the deep role play and the idea is for the student to look at the problem from the point of view of somebody else. Now that somebody else may be somebody very similar or it may be somebody completely different. This morning I taught a case in which students play the role of the young King Hassan of Morocco who is living in a very different world from the world present day military officers live in, at least when they're, they're at home. Maybe similar to the world they encounter when they go overseas. In fact, that that's part of the, the, the reason is that uh, to understand that to be a head of state in many parts of the world is to worry about coups. Right? Your biggest problem with your army in many parts of the world is not whether it will fight well, but whether it will try to overthrow you. So, so the, uh, the idea is when you're doing these exercises, is to is to look at the problem from the point of view of somebody who isn't you, and that somebody may be very very different. And what's the the real value for that? Uh, for what? Why do we want to teach Marines and and officers in particular? I suppose empathy. Yes, because much of what people do in on active service on the battlefield. Again, we're defining battlefield very very broadly. Is cooperate. So I can also say I teach Marines how to cooperate. So if the very simple thing, if you're uh, in a tank, if you're in the infantry, 
you want to call in some artillery fire or an airstrike or something like that, you have to understand. You have to have empathy for the gunner behind the gun. You have to have empathy for the pilot in the plane, understand what his limitations are, what he's seeing. You have, to, you have to look at the world through his eyes. You're cooperating with a similar unit on your flank. You have to understand what their situation is like. When you ask them to do something, what's it like? You're cooperating with an ally. You have to have empathy for the ally. If you're dealing with an enemy, you have to have empathy for him. Understand, you don't have sympathy. You're trying to undo what he's trying to do to you. Uh, but you, uh, you want to be able to look at the world through his eyes, what people will call red teaming or red cell uh, exercise. Uh, and also in the world, there are all these people who are neither allies nor enemies, but somewhere in between. Right? If, if I were you know, a 14-year-old um, high school student, I'd, I'd, I'd call them my frenemies. Right? But, but, but that's, that's most of the world. Mm -hmm. And in fact, again, if you're, if you're King Hassan of Morocco, most people are your frenemies. Well, every time I talk to Bruce, I always come away thinking how much more reading I need to do in order to catch up. Now, that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, Pogo does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help Pogo and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.